for BYU Idaho Radio. I'm John Bitswain, and here with me today is Christian Mollum, a BYU Idaho Communication faculty member and the director of the documentary Flood of Memories. So tell me about this. How how did this idea um, come together, and how were you approached to yeah. be asked as the director? So yeah, I'm working for Soapbox. Um, and a guy gets in, in touch via the arts director for the city and says, can, um, can the Soapbox agency help with some, some videoing of some of these interviews? And I'm more than familiar with having lived in Rexburg now for, 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 for nine years. I'm more than familiar with the story of the, the dam, at least the rudiments of it. I know when it happened and and, and some, of, some of the broader effects, know some people who are affected personally by it, um, but certainly didn't know as much as, as I would if I was doing a documentary about it. And so I was, I was happy to get involved, always good for the students to be involved. Um, but the, um, Fred Woods, he is a religion professor at BYU in Provo, and he does... Um, religious history projects to do with the Latter-day Saints as, as a people and so he's made other documentaries about how um, different Latter-day Saint groups um, came over or developed or joined the church or how the church has grown in places like Montana and places that we don't necessarily think oh yeah like back out east and that kind of thing where you've still got Latter-day Saint communities I mean we, we don't gather to Zion anymore in the way that we used to do crossing the plains back in, in the day. That's not required. Um, and so he's really interested in and a lot of these um, a lot of these stories or histories that he looks into are like 20th century Latter-day Saint history, which is I think we're really good at knowing what goes on with the, the 19th century, aren't we? Saints, books like that and all of these fantastic resources that we've got. But when we start to bring ourselves further um, closer to, to our day then sometimes I think the stories get a little bit lost or they're not necessarily as well told or uh, aren't necessarily I don't want to say official stories um, because um, but there, there are certainly stories that get more more attention than others and so naturally we gravitate towards the pioneers who crossed the plains but I think he's very interesting kind of like the pioneers that um that, that yes, yeah, not, not set up the church, but yeah, developed and grew the church and, and, and helped the church to, to blossom where it was planted, wherever that is in the, in the world. And so that's a, a special interest to him. But he's also interested in big events um, that, that kind of surround um, the Latter-day Saints as a people. And this is one of them. This is one of them. So at first they just wanted a hand with people filming this. He was like, you're up there, I'm down here in Provo. It'd be great if I could come up and you could just kind of kit me out with a, with a crew. And so he was going to pet, he'd got funding for that to happen. And so um, I led the, the team because he was really keen, just saying, hey, this needs to be good. I'm like, like the students are good. And he's like, I want you to ensure that they're going to be good. <laughs> so I, I led the, 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 the students um, shooting the, the interviews. And he was always planning on taking it back to one of his long-term creative partners who he's worked with for many years on lots of these other documentaries. Um, but that, that person was away. I think they might have even been on a mission, uh, an older person. And, um, and he said, hey, um, you do this kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And um, he said, would you be interested in shooting the rest of this and editing it and directing it fully? And I essentially just produce it. 
And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. That sounds, that sounds like fun. You're a nice person. <laughs> I mean, I, d I did it as part of my professional development. So at BYU Idaho, one of the great opportunities that we have in order to keep ourselves sharp, in order for, for us to have uh, relevant work to be able to demonstrate our competency to our students, which I think they appreciate, or we can use the work that we continue to do as case studies. So I was able to do some of this. The majority of, of it I did um, over the break, over the, the, the seven-week break in the summer. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I, I was happy to do it. How is the production phases and how are you able to take, you know, Freddie's vision, make it sort of your own in a way, yeah. but really just communicating that to your crew? Yeah, I mean, um, he, Fred's really good as a producer. He's, um, he was the one, so as a producer, he's, he's sorting out some of the, 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 the funding for this so that Saltbox can be paid so I can get a little bit for expenses over the holiday and that kind of thing while I'm working. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, it is a labor of love. But as far as the creative aspect was concerned, um, he was, I trust you. He's, he's like, he's not there breathing down my neck saying, oh, I'm a filmmaker, do this. He's like, I'm a producer. This is what I do. I'll get people together. I'll conduct the interviews. Um, he then had all of the interviews transcribed because these are serious historical documents from Primary sources, I mean, essentially, albeit people who were there who are reminiscing, casting their minds back through the annals of history over decades, almost coming up to 50 years since 1976, isn't it? So, it's worth its weight in gold, it really is. To be able to hear from those whose lives were affected primarily, not just, I remember my grandma saying, um, but this was like, this is what we experienced, this is how we felt, this was our home that was swept away. Oh, this was my loved one that didn't make it. These are these are profound stories, and um, and of course stories can be profound, and we can be affected by them when we hear via other people. Um, but there's something remarkable, I think, and quite special about being making sure that we preserve these these kind of histories. And so these would be oral histories that have been transcribed, and um, and people sharing their their thoughts about what happened. So as far as creative control, Fred's, Fred's great to work with, Re really great collaborating partner. So we, we've already had a good chat about the tone of it um, and, and what we're looking to, to kind of communicate. Um, and so we're just able to, to kind of come to, to, to agreement there. But there was no, he's, he's not fiddling about kind of it needs to be up, down, tilt a bit, left a bit, you're out of focus, whatever. It's like all of that's my responsibility and, and I expect that to be as the director. So I'm, I'm quality control as far as the, the technical execution. And not just that, but the narrative execution of this as well. He, he, he really did leave me, leave me to it. And one of the reasons being as well that he was, we were excited to work with each other. Fred's previous films, uh, uh, the, the ones that I've seen have, have almost always had some kind of a narrator. So like some exposition where someone's on such and such a day, this happened. And then let's go to, and then we, we get to hear from a contributor, an interviewee who, who gets to chat and that kind of thing. Um, and so um, I'm not too keen on those kinds of things. It's not better or worse. This isn't, that's not right or wrong. It's just a preference thing, but I, I often think that for the sake of hearing things from the horse's mouth, as it were, I'd rather have 
not have an intermediary explain things for me. Now that's important to know from the outset because um, it means that you can't take any shortcuts when you're interviewing people. It means that you've got to ask really, really good questions if they are going to give you encapsulated answers that really stand alone as almost like narrative statements. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what we did. And Fred's super seasoned interviewer of people who's been doing this for years, many, many moons. So he's brilliant at interviewing people. And so he, um, we just incorporated some of those ideas into it. And, um, and yeah, so people are talking about their lived, I mean, visceral in some parts experiences, the smell of the mud as what was left after this, this awful event. Yeah, almost like nigh on apocalyptic event um, happens. And yeah, cities and towns smashed to pieces, nothing left in some instances, all the way down to the bedrock as far as farms and yeah, just, just a, a big impact event. So what were some like struggles and success, notable yeah. success uh, moments? One of the things that I'm always concerned about is we're, we're filmmakers, so we're showing rather than telling. I mean, of course we're telling. We're sitting down people and getting them to tell us what happened. Yeah. Um, but we've sat them down and we're getting them to, to say, uh, to recount and to recall and to share these narratives with us. And, and I think that the, the characters in some part come through, through as well, even though this is a factual piece. Um, but people's kind of um, attitudes and dispositions, like I said, their character comes through as they recount these things. Um, but my concern often for historical documentaries is what are we going to show in addition to talking heads now the nice thing about this was that they have a ton uh, a, a real almost embarrassment of riches with regards to images of the impact of the floods of people cleaning up and recovering the space and the place in and around rexburg wilford roberts sugar city um, even got some great television kind of content from back in the day, um, some radio broadcast stuff that's been really well um, uh, archived and kind of handed down um, through the years. So we, we had full access to all of those bits and pieces. Thanks in great part to uh, local contributors like um, Brother Rick Davis, he's a, he's a photographer in town. Um, he used to teach on campus as well, and he, he was the coroner. <laughs> so, um, so um, all, all retired now, of course, but uh, he had some great images, and other people had contributed to, to this pool of pictures that, um, that BYU-Idaho Special Collections had. Um, and so we had a lot of that visual stuff, but still... There, are, there were a couple of things when people were talking anecdotally about what they'd experienced on that particular day or leading up to it. I think it's always nice to have some, some things which are immersive to kind of take us back to that time, that space, that place, that look, that feel, maybe the aesthetic of the 70s a bit. And so I was using some stock footage, and I, but I was also doing a few dramatic reconstructions like some reenactments like there's a there's a moment where um, someone's popping in on the day of the flood on that Saturday 5th of June 1976 there's a, a lady who's it's a beautiful day and there's a guy who's up on his roof painting the soffits and the fascias on the edge of his home because that's what you do when it's a lovely day yeah 
Um, he's a professor on campus, but he's out for the summer doing his chores on a Saturday. His wife jumps into the car with the kids to go get some groceries or something like that from, from the, uh, I think it was the Mighty Might, um, little kind of mini-mart back in the day. And she pulls out in a car and starts to drive down the lane. And there's a guy waving her down. And, it, and it's, it's a neighbour. And it's funny because he says, the dam's broke. We've all got to get out. And they've got such a relationship with this guy that he's a bit of a joker and she doesn't believe him. She's like, yeah, right, I'm sure the dam hasn't broken. But she kind of reads his face and it's like, oh, not joking this time. And uh, so she believes him, turns around, goes back and, and tells her husband who's... And even he is a little bit kind of incredulous, doesn't believe them. And he's like, well, I've still got paint in my can. Let me finish what I'm doing and then we'll, we'll crack on with this. <laughs> but either way, um, she insisted and the majority of people came up to the hill here, just to higher ground and um, to, to watch what went down. But it was little moments like that that I've reconstructed so get in touch with a friend of mine, if a person in my ward, great guy, wonderful family. Um, he's got a 1966 point, uh, Pontiac, a really good looking car, beautifully restored. Um, it, he even put a 1976 license plate on it for this reenactment. And so little attention to detail like that. So we've got the mum in that car and we've kind of staged a little moment where this vignette is actually seen, is played out. Yeah, whilst they're narrating it. And it's all just to add kind of value to the production and to, to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more uh, fun to watch, if, if that's what you want to call it. But more importantly, I think we're just going for narrative immersion if we can get there. That's always nice. Um, you've mentioned, you know, some stories and, you know, um, information about the damage of yeah. what the fl uh, flood did. Was there any particular story uh, you know, from an interviewer or interviewee that really caught your attention, that surprised you that you didn't know uh, about the flood? Well, not, not necessarily surprised, but I mean, I, I knew that we were, um, that, that people were sharing kind of really personal, intimate things with, with, with us. And so we wanted to treat them with the, the kind of the respect and, and, and reverence even, that, that those kinds of things deserve or, or require there's some funny things that people say like I've still got paint in my can let's crack on with the painting <laughs> um, and and other things which are genuinely quite funny even amidst all of this disaster scenario but um, yeah I, th I think that there are I think the interesting thing about a religious people I mean back then even 1976 this this area was 90% plus Latter-day Saint and, um, and into it, yeah. I mean, the majority of people are like going to church and, and, and really living, living their religion, but here happens this catastrophic, epic thing, yeah? This dam break, this tidal wave, um, this destruction of property, of business, of, of taking loved ones away, um, but it's, it's a real opportunity for, for the Latter-day Saints of this valley to kind of put their money where their mouth is by way of let's, let's, let's live the testimony then. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say, but it's another thing to do. And, uh, and it's not to say that they weren't doing that already, of course. Um, but 
um, I think that's one of the things that, that was really heartening for, for me to see was just the way that people um, stepped up and did. And it, and it wasn't just a Latter-day Saint thing either. Um, there were busloads, busloads, hundreds of people came from elsewhere. The majority of these were kind of like, were, were often relatives from of even as far away as Arizona, lots from Utah, of course, just, just coming up. Uh, we did have folks from Montana and, uh, and elsewhere um, coming to lend a hand with the cleanup um, and seeing people who weren't affected locally, maybe they lived higher up and so their houses or their properties or businesses weren't affected. Um, and so they just did what they could to, to help because they just thought, hey. So yeah, that was nice. There was this kind of this ecumenical vibe because represented, they even had like an interfaith council as part of the, the kind of the response and cleanup um, activity, Catholics, um, Mennonites, um, yeah, yeah, you had the full spectrum of Methodists and Baptists, um, all, all lending a hand. And, uh, and it's just because they felt the need, they knew it was the right thing to do, and so they did, because they were just fantastically good people, which is lovely. But if I was to say that there is something that, um, that, that sticks out, I'd say it was the, the story, it was, we, we do include the story of one, um, of one person who is representative, I suppose, of, of all of the people who did lose someone directly. And she was a, um, the, the lady's name is Terry Hill, and she, um, she gives a fantastic, fantastic piece um, in this film, and it's really just, just lovely to hear and it's extraordinary to, to hear how she coped, how she dealt with it, and how it affected her. She was 15 at the time, and it was her older brother who, who died, and he was, he was some five, five or so years older than her. And so, brilliant relationship with a big brother, loved him to bits, and he goes out fishing with his friend that day and, and, and doesn't come back. But all of the worry of, of not knowing where he is or how he is, and... The, the added burden, if you like, or the, the, the trauma or, or the, the distress of hoping that he's okay because they do find his friend who was in the little boat with him when they were fishing on the, on the Teton River just down from the dam when that, when that literally tidal wave came, came down, 50, 50, 60 foot coming towards them. And so we, we've, got, we've got that recounted, we've got that shared, but just how, how she coped and dealt with it and that's not something that you, you get over. I don't, I don't think we ever get over those kinds of things um, fully. Um, there's always a place and a space and a, and a whole. But the things that, and, and I suppose this brings us neatly to this idea of, we are talking about profoundly, deeply religious people here. Um, and whether we like it or not, historically, I think some people might want to shy away from, oh, let's just stick to the factoids all of the stuff we can prove, 11 dead, so many cattle lost, X amount, billion dollars worth of damage done. Um, but the real lived experience of religious people is through a religious spiritual context. And so if their reminiscence are, I felt that God blessed me on this day, and this is why, and this is how, I'm happy for them to, to recount those contexts for, to other people. Because who are we to, to argue with that? Someone could argue with it and just say, oh, well, you say that. And I'm saying, well, hey, 
they are saying that, but not just saying that, they live that and they experience that and they're sharing it with, with us. And we should take it for what it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, people's lived experience, real lived experience. And, uh, and so that's a, that's a beautiful thing, I think, that we're able just to kind of go back and, and learn from it. One of the other things as well, I think, that, that makes it so I was really keen to be involved. I, I do think history is huge. I do think that none of us can know where we're going unless we know where we've come from. Um, you know I'm not from around here. I'm from the northeast of England. But guess what? I'm a Rexburg resident. I've lived here for nine years. And so this is a story that matters to me. I know these people. I'm able to understand and appreciate this place better for knowing this story more, um, from knowing the, the outcomes, the lessons learned, the choices made by those people on that day of days and the, the subsequent months and years of, of, of recovery. Um, so I think it's really important. And without being kind of macabre, the folks that we interviewed they're, they're, they're old now, they're older people, and so they're not going to be around forever um, as far as kind of residents in Rexburg anyway. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in the resurrection, but hey, we don't want to wait until the millennium to, to tell this story. We need to safeguard whatever stories we can and make sure that subsequent generations get to hear this. And so, um, one, of the, one of the things that we're going to do with this, and one of the reasons that the city was involved with helping to pay for some of the interviews to get done, um, that they've got kind of a, a stake in this, is that they, uh, they're really keen on having a, a film that can be in the, um, the Rexburg Museum, in the Teton Flood Museum, so that school kids can come, can be brought, or this can go to them, and they can get a bit of what this story was about. Um, that's the reason we kept the kind of the duration a bit shorter as well, so that young people would be able to handle this with their uh, with their TikTok duration capacities. <laughs> so even even thirty minutes is going to be a bit of a stretch, isn't it? But yeah, hopefully we we think it's something for for pretty much all ages. We think that kind of um, elementary school kids up the top end of elementary would be able to understand and follow what's going on. It could, could prompt and provoke. Um, a lot of a lot of questions. Another thing as well would be that um, it, one of the things that we're really keen to do as well is that to give you an idea of the scale of these interviews, we've got over 22 interviews that were conducted, averaging around um, 45 minutes. Some are longer, and we've condensed that there. So not everyone who we interviewed makes this this cut of this film, but. What we're wanting to do with and for the city is for the museum. The best kinds of museums are interactive. The best kinds of museums are tactile, immersive, hands-on. Um, and so it would be fantastic if we were able to have something where you had a big screen that you could touch and it would be, um, give me the factoids from the flood. Bung, bung, bung. They can pop up. Yeah. Give me funny stories from the flood. Yeah. This and that. Bumph. There you go. You can press that. And so there are a lot of stories which we simply couldn't tell because of that distillation, yeah, um, that we had to, to kind of omit the majority of all of the stories in order to come up with this shared narrative that we've, we've created. And so 
there won't be anything wasted with regards to, to, to these narratives. Like I say, all of these things have been transcribed, all of these things will be submi submitted to the church archives, be made available to other people so that historians are able to look at this and, and learn from it and get value from it. So, um, so yeah, it's just been a really fun project to be engaged with. Indeed. So what are the uh, details about the premiere coming? Uh, it is, as far as I'm aware, it's uh, in the Romance Theatre, um, 7 p.m. this um, this coming Monday, September the 11th, the 11th of September, yeah. Romance Theatre. Thank you, sir, for your time for this interview. Um, it was pretty great.